Sure, yeah, okay. Well, I'm a Christian philosopher, so I studied philosophy at various universities uh, for a while, and then I did student work in Leicester for a while, and then I moved down to the south coast uh, to Southampton, where I now live, where I work alongside a a Christian educational charity who are based there, uh, under whose auspices I travel around the country doing um, philosophy and ethics conferences with sixth form students under the sort of general curriculum requirements. And I also do talking at churches and Christian unions and so on on these kind of uh, apologetical philosophical issues and writing and taking whatever opportunities I can to uh, be involved in the um, intellectual defence of Christianity. Excellent. Um, do I pray for you quickly before you start? Uh, I, I would like <coughs> that, indeed. Excellent. <laughs> Father, thank you for bringing Peter here tonight. May you please use him to, to speak to the people in the audience tonight, Father. We thank you and praise you for the, the gifts you've given him, Father, and the way that he's using them to, to serve you. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. It's lovely to be invited to come and spend a nice chunk of time uh, talking not merely at, but with, when we get on to the Q&A time, uh, a nice bunch of bright people about some interesting uh, issues. Uh, So I hope you'll find something uh, engaging in what I have to say tonight, perhaps something provocative as well. We'll see when we get to the Q&A time. Uh, Just to bring to your attention my website address, Uh, there's a bunch of free stuff on there, including the uh, links through to my podcast channel, the YouTube channel and things. I am recording uh, this evening for my podcast channel. Uh, Fair warning just to let you know uh, that that's happening. So uh, I'm going to look at a a number of uh, points at which I would want to pull up uh, the new atheism uh, for uh, being wrong about various things, uh, sometimes in a rather catastrophic Uh, manner, and we'll work our way through this list, uh, where I'm going to try and indicate why I think the New Atheists are wrong about faith, about scientism, about freedom and responsibility, about morality, about materialism, about the Gospels, and about Jesus. I was uh, asked a question over dinner earlier, how I would define uh, the new atheism and where this sort of phraseology comes from. Uh, today we, we sort of speak about the new atheists or neo-atheists and that seems to then draw a contrast between that group of atheists and other groups of atheists uh, who we will call um, classical atheists perhaps. Uh, and uh, it was actually an article in uh, Wired magazine uh, referenced at the top corner there. Uh, by Gary Wolfe that coined uh, the phrase, the term, the new atheism. Uh, But this uh, group of uh, mainly uh, American and English, although some European uh, writers, uh, have then self-appropriated that term. Uh, So, for example, uh, the uh, physicist Victor Stenger uh, published a book uh, called The New Atheism. Uh, So they've uh, sort of uh, adopted this term that was coined for them uh, by the agnostic writer writer Gary Wolfe, who defined uh, them in this article in Wired magazine in this way. He said, the new atheists condemn not just belief in God, but respect for belief in God. Uh, In their opinion, religion is not only wrong, it's evil. 
so this is the kind of atheism that not only says uh, belief in God or religious beliefs are an intellectually mistaken position uh, for you to hold, but that it is a bad thing uh, for you and me and society as a whole, and we should try and keep atheism out of the public square, and we should try and deconvert as many people as possible. Uh, some people refer to it as a sort of evangelistic atheism, uh, as it were. Uh, let's give you a little uh, formula for new atheism. I think this is really at the core of new atheism. Now, you don't have to be a, a materialist or a naturalist in order to be an atheist, but in our culture, most are. And certainly, the new atheists uh, subscribe to a materialistic worldview in terms of their understanding of what's real or what a philosopher would call ontology. They are uh, materialists, metaphysical naturalists. They uh, marry their materialism to a belief in scientism. Now, let me be very clear that I do not mean science, but scientism. And by scientism, I mean uh, a particular theory of knowledge. Uh, so moving on from their ontology, this is now their epistemology, a long, fancy Greek philosophical way of saying, how do we know stuff? Um, their theory of how we know stuff is that you know stuff through scientific methods, i.e. basically it comes down to your five senses. Marry that to a sort of moral crusade against religion, and you get the new atheism. So very briefly, what is materialism, naturalism? It is, of course, the majority worldview of Western academia, at least, since sometime in the early to mid-20th century. If I were to define it in the way that the new atheists tend to talk about religious matters, just to put my tongue in cheek momentarily, I might call materialism a philosophy made up by a bunch of pre-scientific ancient Greeks and accepted by about 2% of people. Uh, Julian Bugini defines it as a belief that there's only the natural world and not any supernatural one. Pretty straightforward. Or Alex Rosenberg, who's a new atheist, says physics is a causally closed and causally complete. So the physical story about reality is the only story about reality, full stop. For the new atheists, reality is an uncreated, closed, impersonal and non-intentional physical system, full stop. As Rosenberg puts it in his book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, he says, uh, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Are you kidding is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. A uh, nice, succinct and forthright statement of Rosenberg's worldview. What is scientism, to move on from the ontology to the epistemology... It's something that uh, it attributes exclusive or, or perhaps near-exclusive rights over knowledge to empirical or scientific verification. That is, as Nancy Piercy uh, in her book Saving Leonardo points out, it's the view that immediately leads up to setting up uh, a dichotomy between 
facts and values. The fact-value distinction. Piercy says the strict separation of facts from values is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. And people have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought, the way things are and the way things should be, between uh, descriptive statements and normative statements. But in earlier ages, however, people thought both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, it was either true or false. But under a scientific understanding of knowledge, uh, most new atheists would agree that it cashes out into a fact-value distinction because scientific empirical investigation can't get you from the descriptive is of reality to justifying any prescriptive oughts about reality. Now, Victor Stenger, who I've mentioned, is seems to be quite sensitive to this charge of scientism. He recognises that people label new atheists as scientistic in their theory of knowledge. And he says, critics accused new atheism of scientism, which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity. They cannot quote a single new atheist who said that. Uh, So Stenger says this is a false charge against new atheists. Well, consider the following quotations, and then I'll tell you where they're from. But consider the viewpoint of someone who says these three things. He says that science does not require, nor does it use, any metaphysics. It doesn't use any philosophy. So science doesn't depend upon philosophy. And, he says, science is... Belief in the presence of supportive evidence. So it's about empirical, verifiable knowledge through science. While, on the other hand, complete dichotomy, faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me that someone who holds those views clearly has a scientific theory of knowledge. They're saying science is about empirical evidence that helps us know stuff and science has nothing to do with philosophy and that's completely distinct from faith which is all about blind faith. Seems like scientism. Also, all of these quotes are from Victor J. Stenger in his book, The New Atheism. So Stenger is sensitive to the charge of scientism, says you can't quote any new atheist as being scientific and yet you can quote Victor J. Stenger as being scientistic. Or Alex Rosenberg, when he says, we trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge. That is why we are so confident about atheism. Or Peter Atkins, who says, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Or Richard Dawkins, who divides all beliefs into one of two categories. On the one hand, there is what he calls proper evidence-based belief. He says the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there's real evidence that it does. Ultimately, it always comes back to our senses one way or another. And on the other hand, he says there is blind faith. Faith is, definition, believing in something where there literally isn't a scrap of evidence, 
if there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith by definition. A.C. Grayling agrees with Dawkins on this. He says faith involves deliberate ignoring of evidence or commitment despite a lack of evidence. Well, I would say that although, of course, there are some religious people who exercise blind faith, as a matter of giving a definition of faith, the new atheists are clearly wrong about faith. Um, As C.S. Lewis put it, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. And he said it's not a dichotomy between faith and reason, but rather faith exercised on the basis of reason, fighting against various temptations not to trust what you think you know is trustworthy. So although uh, you might think that religious people's faith is misplaced, as a matter of definition, uh, it should be clear, and it's certainly clear within the, the mainstream biblical tradition, that faith is not automatically a blind faith, and that's certainly not the kind of faith that the Bible talks about. As Professor John Lennox from Oxford Uni, a philosopher of science, says, it's the new atheist concept of faith that is a delusion in the precise sense that they assign to the term, a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence. Against all the evidence, do they not even bother to consult dictionaries? They irrationally reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. Not only are they wrong about faith, they're wrong about scientism, I would say. That the scientific demand that every rational belief, in order to qualify as being a rational belief, uh, must be justified by evidence. That is a self-contradictory demand to make. For example, it can't be justified by evidence. What is the empirical evidence in support of the truth of the claim that you can only rationally know things via empirical evidence? It also entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. If if a belief of mine is only going to be rational if I hold it on the basis of evidence, well then my belief in the evidence and my belief that the evidence supports my belief will only be rational if I have evidence for those beliefs. And those beliefs will only be rational if I have evidence for them. And so on. It generates an infinite regress that you cannot meet. This scientific demand is also, I would say, open to obvious counterexamples, um, such as moral knowledge or logical knowledge, which indeed one might say are kinds of knowledge one needs to have in order to even do science. Try doing science without relying upon the law of non-contradiction or modus ponens as a form of argumentation. To turn to Lewis again, he said, you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends upon rational intuition. Proof, in that sense, rests upon the unprovable that just has to be seen. Now, actually, there is one neo-atheist who I can bring to my defence at this point. I don't believe neo-atheists are wrong about everything. So Sam Harris, in The End of Faith, makes this point. He says, intuition, 
denotes the most basic constituent of our faculty of understanding. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core, as any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. So they're wrong about faith, they're wrong about scientism on the other side of that coin. I would also argue that they're wrong about freedom and responsibility. I think if I were someone who's convinced of a naturalistic worldview, I would find this argument very convincing. And it goes like this. First premise, purely physical things, or systems, you might want to add, but purely physical things, behave according to the laws of physics. And they lack libertarian free will. Now, even if you want to include an element of genuine ontological randomness within the laws of physics, behaving randomly is not the same thing as behaving intentionally with free will. So purely physical things behave according to the laws of physics, and so they lack libertarian free will. Second premise, human beings are purely physical things. From those two premises, it follows deductively that therefore human beings lack libertarian free will. Now, I disagree with this argument, but that's because I think that human beings are not purely physical things, which is a belief that entails that naturalism is false. But hey, I'm not a naturalist. I'm a supernaturalist because I'm a Christian. But if I started from the same worldview position that naturalism is true... I think I would find this a very powerful argument. You can see this argument underlying what Richard Dawkins says, for example, when he talks about um, applying his worldview to the judicial system. Uh, Here's a quote from the Edge Foundation website. Dawkins argues that human brains, though they may not work in the same way as man-made computers, are surely governed by the laws of physics. And, of course, from his naturalistic perspective, there isn't a difference between a human brain and a human mind. He is not a mind-body dualist. He says, when a computer malfunctions, we don't punish it. We track down the problem and we fix it. Isn't the murderer just a machine with a defective component? He says, concepts like blame and responsibility are bandied about freely where human wrongdoers are concerned, but doesn't a mechanistic view of the nervous system make nonsense of the very idea of responsibility? So he concludes that any crime, he says, is in principle to be blamed not, not, on the, not on the person who commits the crime, is to be blamed on antecedent conditions acting through the accused's physiology, heredity and environment and the interaction thereof. But here's the question I would want to put to this. Particularly given the new atheist stance against the the evils of religion, which is primarily grounded in their stance that religion is all about having blind faith, and blind faith leads to you being gullible and strapping on bombs to yourself and flying planes into buildings and things because you're not exercising your critical faculties like you should. Well, if everything about a person is quote, governed by the laws of physics, 
surely blaming them for their intellectual failings. I don't know, failings such as having blind faith. Wouldn't that make about as much sense as Newton blaming gravity for giving him an apple-sized bump on the head? So how could anyone, for example, a Christian, be responsible for not living up to their intellectual responsibilities if they aren't free to be responsible for anything in the first place? Now, it seems to me that the obvious answer to that question is they can't. Um, Dawkins can't have it both ways. You can either um, berate religious folks for not living up to their responsibilities... Or you can tell people that they don't have any responsibilities, but telling them both things at the same time doesn't seem to make much sense. Which ties in pretty closely, as you can see, to the whole subject of morality. Now, again, here the new atheists don't speak necessarily with one voice. Sam Harris, uh, again, interestingly, stands out as a moral objectivist. Um, I've read his book on moral objectivism. I don't think he does a good job of defending uh, it in terms of his worldview. But I would agree with him about the objectivity of moral values. But most new atheists are moral subjectivists. They don't believe there really are such things as moral values or obligations in reality. Um, So despite their constant moralising, whether you take Christopher Hitchens' God is not great or Dawkins' The God Delusion, their scientism, which sets up, as we saw earlier, this fact-value distinction, leads them to reject the objective reality of moral values. So, for example, Dawkins says this. says, there is a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between... Ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do, normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. So when he says in his book things like Hitler and Stalin were by any standard spectacularly evil men you might be tempted to think that Richard Dawkins thinks that Hitler and Stalin were, by any standard, spectacularly evil men. But you will have to remember that, as he talks to you in your other ear, as it were, that he's also telling you that I don't believe that there are any objective values. There aren't any standards in that sense. Any standards are just socio-biological relative things. He talks about the the changing zeitgeist and so on. But then surely that undermines equally claims like um, faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. Uh, Setting aside the fact that he's misunderstood faith there, seems that again he's sort of trying to give you a viewpoint with one hand that he's also taking away with the other. Um, He seems to be saying, on the one hand, that we we have an objective moral obligation to oppose religion because religion is an objectively bad thing in that it does encourage people to ignore their, their genuine intellectual moral obligations. But he also says that there are no objective moral values to which we could be obligated. Quite apart from the fact that we couldn't actually have the freedom to follow those obligations 
in the first place. I think the New Atheists are wrong about their materialism. Um, and it was very interesting, I came across this quote from uh, the agnostic philosopher Anthony Kenny recently, uh, writing in the Times. He just dropped this comment into the middle of a book review uh, that he was doing there. He said, There are signs that naturalism is collapsing under its own weight. Um, it's quite a surprising quotation to find in the Times from uh, a well-known uh, knighted philosopher of the realm. Um, Gary Habermas says that just as idealism gave way to naturalism earlier in the 20th century, um, that was the, the worldview that dominated academic philosophy before naturalism did. He says naturalism may now be losing its position of supremacy as a worldview. The atheist philosopher Quentin Smith, a few years ago, wrote a, an article highlighting what he called the influx of talented theists into philosophy departments in the States. And he um, lamented uh, in this article, he said, academia has now lost its mainstream secularization. If naturalism is the true worldview and a dark age means an age where the vast majority of philosophers and scientists do not know the true worldview, then we have to admit we are living in a dark age. One sign of this uh, dark age from the Quentin viewpoint, as Habermas points out, is the current revival of theistic arguments within philosophy of religion and science. Uh, and just to uh, put a selection of recent uh, books up there. The last half century has witnessed a remarkable resurgence of interest in natural theology, says William Lane Craig. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, uh, recently retired from Notre Dame University, probably the top philosopher of religion in the world, says, there are a number of reasonably strong arguments for the existence of God, and I'd certainly go along with that. But perhaps a little less obvious as a publishing phenomenon, it's what I call the other publishing phenomena, books like these, published in the last decade by leading atheist and agnostic and non-Christian philosophers and thinkers questioning or at least raising uh, problems with elements of a naturalistic worldview. Um, books like Anthony Flew's There Is a God or Thomas Nagel's Mind and Cosmos or Bradley Monton's Seeking God in Science or um, Hume's Abject Failure by John Ehrman and so on. Here's an interesting case in point. This is from a, an interview he gave uh, just around the time that his uh, book detailing his about turn of mind came out. And he said in that interview, the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life, the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could just magically generate the, the genetic code. The best confirmation of this radical gulf is Richard Dawkins' comical effort to argue in The God Delusion that the origin of life can be attributed to a lucky chance. If that's the best argument you have, then the game's over. Two noted philosophers, one an agnostic, Anthony Kenny, who we just quoted earlier, uh, and the other an atheist, Thomas Nagel, recently pointed out that Dawkins has failed to address three major issues that ground the rational case for God. And as it happens, these are the very same issues that had driven me to accept the existence of a God. The laws of nature, 
life with its teleological organisation and the existence of the universe. It's interesting to see by parallel um, Bradley Monton, although he remains an atheist, (laughs) nevertheless saying in his book Seeking God in Science, an argument that starts from fine-tuning of the fundamental constants, an argument based on the fact that the universe began to exist, and an argument based on the improbability of the naturalistic origin of life from non-life, are all somewhat plausible. Let's just think briefly uh, about the kind of arguments that uh, swirl around these uh, topics. Think about the implications of contemporary cosmology. Um, So Bradley Monton again says, um, if the universe had a beginning, then that lends support to what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, But at the conference a couple of years ago, celebrating um, Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday, um, the well-known atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin uh, went so far as to say this in a lecture he gave at that conference. He said, all of the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. Not the preponderance of the evidence that we have says on balance that the universe had a beginning, but all the evidence we have says the universe had a beginning. And in the editorial of New Scientist, uh, not known as a a bastion of supernatural views, um, reporting on that conference, uh, the editorial of New Scientist uh, from 14th of January 2012 said this, The Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. But many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of the theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that dodged the need for a beginning whilst still requiring a Big Bang. Um, an illustration of how one might do that, for example, oscillating universe models. You say, yes, there was a Big Bang, but there was a a previous Big Bang to that. So there was an expansion and a contraction, and then an expansion, and there'll be another... And we have a sort of oscillating universe model, for example, um, although those have now been ditched. As New Scientist says, uh, but recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? And by nothing there, you have to mean nothing and not what Lawrence Krauss means by nothing. How do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? Um, Well... Surely the only way to get anything, or to explain anything, is to get it from something able to give it. That seems um, pretty straightforward. Uh, Now, nothing means non-being, not anything. So non-being can't do or give or explain anything because it isn't anything. So no physical reality can explain the existence of all physical reality. 
that would be a self-contradictory concept. So having eliminated non-being and physical being as potential explanations of the being of the physical universe, the only remaining possibility is non-physical being, i.e. some sort of supernatural being. Think of it like this. Let's do it through in premises. Uh, Modern cosmology tells us what uh, some Christian and Islamic philosophers had argued on mathematical, cosmological basis for a long time, but have now joined with them in saying there was a beginning. There was a first physical event. If you trace the chain of physical events backwards in time, in the TARDIS, you would, as it were, get to a day where there was no previous day worth of time, an hour before which there was no previous hour worth of time, and so on. As uh, Alexander Vilenkin, we quoted, says, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. So there was a first physical event. Premise two, every physical event has a cause. Now that is not a controversial claim, except perhaps when you want to apply it to the first physical event and people start getting jittery because they see what it implies. But certainly, relative to our experience base of reality, you would say the chances of the proposition every physical event has a cause being true is pretty high. Um, If we were here in the lecture and we suddenly heard a gigantic bang from the corridor and you said, good grief, what was that? Uh, well, it was a bang. But yes, but what caused it? What happened? I said, well, nothing. You'd all believe me and we'd just carry on as if, you know. No, you would not seriously consider nothing as an answer. But those two premises jointly imply something. And just a note to, uh, to swat down what I know is the, the favourite comeback here is to make an appeal to quantum mechanics at this stage. Um, But as David Albert, who is an atheist philosopher of science and physicist, says, uh, relativistic quantum field theoretical vacuum states, no less than giraffes or refrigerators or solar systems, he obviously has a a wry sense of humour, this guy, says, are particular arrangements of elementary physical stuff. The fact that some arrangements of fields happen to correspond to the existence of particles and some don't, is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that some of the possible arrangements of my fingers happen to correspond to the existence of a fist, and some don't. And the fact that particles can pop in and out of existence over time as those fields rearrange themselves is not a whit more mysterious than the fact that fists can pop in and out of existence over time as my fingers rearrange themselves. And none of these poppings amount to anything even remotely in the neighbourhood of a creation from nothing. So there was a first physical event. Every physical event has a cause. Therefore, the first physical event had a cause. But if the first physical event had a cause, the cause of the first physical event can't itself have been a physical cause. You can't say, what caused the first physical cause? Well, it was the previous physical event makes no sense, Uh, from which it follows that therefore the first physical event had a non-physical cause. 
as the philosopher Dallas Willard puts it, the dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness of the series of any dependencies underlying the existence of any given physical state, logically implies at least one self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. Or what about the fine-tuning of the laws of nature within that Big Bang? You see someone enter a sequence of numbers into a cash machine, and it gives them money. Were they lucky, or did they get the money by design? When a complex event matches an independently given or functionally specified pattern, we very naturally and rightly infer design. But then the cosmic fine-tuning would seem to be an example of exactly that kind of a pattern. American philosopher Bill Craig puts it like this. He says, the fine-tuning of the universe could be due to physical necessity or chance or design. But if we can rule out physical necessity and chance, then we can rule in design. Well, here we can call uh, Stephen Hawking as an expert witness. Um, Hawking would agree that the laws of nature are not determined or demanded by logical or physical principle. Uh, We can cross out physical necessity from our list. How do we choose between the chance and design hypotheses? Um, Like the cash machine, Craig explains, in addition to high improbability, there needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. And when those two elements are present, we have specified complexity, which is the tip-off to intelligent design. Thus, for example, in a poker game, any deal of cards is, of course, equally and highly improbable. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he gets all four aces, you can bet that this is not the result of chance, but of design. Hawking says the problem is, for our theoretical models of Big Bang to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. In other words, he would agree that the fine-tuning of the universe seems to exhibit specified complexity. But if such complexity indicates design reliably in our experience, then we have a good argument that the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed. Um, We've crossed out necessity and chance, ruling in design. Now, of course, the typical objection here, just to look at the typical one, is to say something like, well, if there were enough different universes, then the specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify a design inference. Uh, We give ourselves extra rolls of the dice, as it were, in order to explain it away. Of course, the crucial premise that you need in order to get to the conclusion that the fine-tuning doesn't justify a design inference is that there are enough different universes out there which in the absence of independent evidence is not a very good argument. It's a bit like saying, well, if there were enough monkeys at enough typewriters typing away randomly for long enough, they could produce Hamlet. But whenever you go to see Hamlet, or you see a a copy of the, the play Hamlet, you don't immediately go, oh, look, there must be a heck of a lot of monkeys and typewriters somewhere. 
Agnostic Jim Holt, in his book Why Does the World Exist, says, Since other universes are, by definition, not directly observable from our own, the burden of proof is clearly on those who claim they exist. Chad Meister points out that there is currently no experimental evidence in support of the many universes hypothesis, though. So just like um, Hamlet, I think the one designer hypothesis uh, seems to be much more straightforward. Even if you do invoke multiverses, they don't actually help you. As uh, Paul Davis, as an agnostic cosmologist, says, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. One only has to list the many assumptions that underpin a multiverse theory. There has to be a universe-generating mechanism and so on. Um, That mechanism has to be there in order to produce and differentiate these different supposed universes that we're contemplating. And indeed, why should that particular mechanism of its particular specified complexity rather than another, one that just randomly generates millions and millions of non-life permitting universes. It would never permit one. Why, why a mechanism that would permit one of the universes to have life? You just kind of kick the problem up a level. Bradley Monton says um, at the end here, um, would, not, uh, would there not be improbable fine-tuning associated with the existence of these physical realities, i.e. the universe-generating mechanisms as well? It's like trying to hide the ruckle in the carpet by sort of moving it along the corridor a bit. So Bradley Monton, and again I stress, he remains an atheist. Um, But he says, I hold that the intelligent design arguments do have some force. They make me less certain of my atheism than I would had I not heard the arguments. I think there is some evidence for an intelligent designer, and in fact I think there is some evidence that the intelligent designer is God. Mind, talking about intelligence, but looking more closely to home, is currently a huge and growing problem for a materialistic worldview. You're getting books published like uh, The Waning of Materialism with Oxford University Press. Um, Fascinating article by the philosopher William Lacan in the Australasian Journal of Philosophy a few years ago. He says, I've been a materialist about mine for 40 years, and I'd like to think that my stance is rational. Um, Held because the arguments do indeed favour materialism over dualism. But I don't think that. Uh, the standard objections to dualism are not very convincing. If one really manages to be a dualist in the first place, one should not be much impressed by them. My purpose in this paper is to hold my own feet to the fire and admit that I do not proportion my belief to the evidence. Um, if you want to follow that up online, it's William G. Lycan, L-Y. C-A-N, and the title is Giving Dualism Its Due uh, from the 2007 uh, keynote address to the AAP. Um, plenty of contemporary philosophers of mind who are not of a theistic uh, persuasion at all are now saying things like, nobody has the slightest idea how anything material could be conscious. Um, Raymond Tallis, the attempt to fit consciousness into the material world has failed Dismally, Ned Block, we have no conception of our physical or functional natures that allows us to understand how it could explain our subjective experiences. Um, Michael Roos recently said, I find consciousness one hell of a challenge. I honestly think that we have not solved the mind-body problem. Um, They will then generally say something like, but keep tuned here, have faith, 
we will find an answer. We'll, we must, because, of course, naturalism is true. Um, so we hope we'll give it a bit longer and we'll find the answer. Um, but from the other perspective, you could see this really just as a, a failure to rebut the prima facie case for dualism. Mind certainly doesn't seem like it's a material thing. Um, Consequently, as Matthew Iredale says, there appears to be something of a crisis of confidence in materialist accounts of consciousness. Uh, John Heal, philosopher of mind, says, in recent years, dissatisfaction with materialist assumptions has led to a revival of interest in forms of dualism, uh, and so on. I mentioned uh, Coons and Beeler's uh, The Waning of Materialism uh, earlier, and there's a, a an interesting quote there about the growing number of prominent philosophers who once had strong materialist sympathies who have come to the conclusion that at least some of the arguments against materialism can't be overcome. Just one fascinating example um, from Alex uh, Rosenberg's book. Um, in Alex Rosenberg's uh, The Atheist Guide to Reality, he does a, a, a stand-up job, I think, of arguing, uh, as he says here, that no chunk of matter can just by itself be about other chunks of matter without a mind to interpret the first chunk of matter as being about the second chunk of matter. The brain can't have thoughts about Paris or about anything else for that matter. One clump of matter can't be about another clump of matter. Um, Yes, well, I would agree with him. Um, But I will also agree with him when he writes this. Consciousness tells you in no uncertain terms what the content of your thought is, what your thought is about. It's about the statement that Paris is the capital of France. That's the thought you're thinking. It just can't be denied. You can't be wrong about the content of your thought. Unfortunately for Rosenberg... The premise that purely physical realities cannot have thoughts about anything, plus the premise that we have thoughts about things, ineluctably leads you to the conclusion that therefore we are not purely physical realities, and that therefore naturalism is false. Um, Paul Copan, on a slightly different tack, asked uh, Richard Dawkins uh, the question about uh, the rationality of, uh, of beliefs given a materialistic worldview. He says, uh, even if the atheist is correct, it seems to me that it would be completely by accident rather than by any virtue of rationality that the atheist has if both the atheist's mind, i.e. That their brain, and the theist's mind, i.e. their brain, are just both governed by the laws of physics and d- determined to think whatever they think. Um, Dawkins Reply to this question shows that he is not up on the contemporary philosophical debate about this. Uh, He misunderstands the question and has to have it clarified. And then in answering the clarified question, he dodges the subject and just changes the topic. Uh, He says, uh, um, you could ask the same question about any difference of opinion, which is true but completely is beside the point. And he changes the subject and says, if you were to ask me why I'm confident that my scientific rationalism uh, is... uh, Was he going to say rational? I wonder. Is the right answer? I mean, the answer is that it works. But as Sam Harris notes, our logical, mathematical and physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track the truth on a materialistic worldview. Or as the atheist philosopher of mind Patricia Churchland says, again, somewhat tongue-in-cheek here in the way she phrases it, but a serious point, 
She says, boiled down to the essentials, a nervous system enables the organism to succeed, in evolutionary terms, in the four Fs. Feeding, fleeing, fighting, and reproducing. The principal chore of a nervous system is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost. But if truth takes the hindmost on a materialistic understanding of people, how can naturalists be confident about the truth of naturalism? And indeed, in his recent book, Mind and Cosmos, the atheist philosopher of mind, Thomas Nagel, argues that evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities, our rational capacities, that undermines their reliability. And in doing so, undermines itself. In his book, The Last Word, he says, the reliance we put on reason implies a belief that the basic methods of reasoning we employ are not merely human, but belong to a more general category of mind. Which is a fascinating thing to find in the the book written by a staunch atheist. He admits, conscious subjects and their mental lives are inescapable components of reality, not describable by the physical sciences. Whatever Alex Rosenberg may say to the contrary in his definition of a materialistic worldview. Let's take Gospels and Jesus together just very briefly. Uh, I don't have time to delve into this unless you ask me questions about it, but basically neo-atheist biblical scholarship is about 150 years out of date. Um, David Glass notes that scholarship on the historical Jesus has become much less sceptical in recent decades. The consensus about what can be known on the basis of the evidence has shifted considerably since the days of Boltman and so on that uh, the neo-atheists seem to have read. Dal Bock uh, mentions that those who participate in what's called the third quest for the historical Jesus has tended to see far more historicity in the Gospels than either of the previous quests, showing a renewed respect for the general historical character of the Gospels. Now, on that kind of basis, uh, and again, let me flash up a selection of uh, books to you, uh, like Richard Bockham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, or Paul Barnett's Finding the Historical Christ, or... uh, Michael Lycona's recent book on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, On that kind of basis of the third quest, it becomes much more plausible to talk about arguments that that assume a a certain historicity to the reports about Jesus in the Gospels and to mount arguments like C.S. Lewis's famous argument that's become known as the trilemma, um, where he says a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus is reported to have said about himself would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the very devil of hell, i.e. he'd be a blaspheming, lying con artist. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. Um... Richard Dawkins' response to this argument, apart from his deep scepticism about general biblical historicity, is to say this. Look, a fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning here, is that Jesus was just honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are. You know, sometimes I think I've left my keys in my coat pocket and actually they're on the shelf. 
sometimes first century Palestinian Jews go around putting themselves in the shoes of God and accepting worship and saying they're going to forgive people's sins and judge the Sanhedrin on the, sub- on the judgment day. But they're, you know, they're just honestly mistaken. Um, yeah, that is exactly the uh, response that I get from every audience that I've put that suggestion to. Just a sort of um, embarrassed giggle. Um, Stephen T. Davis, um, Christian philosopher, puts it like this. He says, it's not easy to see how any sane religious first century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. Nicky Gumbel hits the nail on the head, I think, when he says, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe in God, but Jesus was not deluded even though he thought he was God. (laughs) So... Saying, oh, he was just honestly mistaken, seems about the least plausible response to the idea that Jesus claimed uh, equality with God in some strong sense. Um, But why not go for the other options if his claims were false? If his claims were false, he either believed them sincerely, in which case he's a loony, uh, or he didn't believe them sincerely, he was being insincere, in which case he's a liar. Why not go for one of those options? Well, um, Mike King says anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be insane, but why should Dawkins et al. not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Well, it's because they want to have the viewpoint that C.S. Lewis was arguing against, that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. But a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates that the other possibilities just don't really pan out. I mean, Dawkins himself said in a recent interview, there's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. So he seems to recognise that there's a problem with invoking the lunatic option here. Um, Well, what about thinking that Jesus was a lying, blaspheming con artist who just deliberately put his head in the noose, as it were, before the Sanhedrin Council. Um, Jesus was a great moral teacher, says Dawkins. He acknowledges the moral superiority of Jesus, one of the greatest ethical innovators of history, and so on. He wants to... Jesus was just a good moral teacher. But as Lewis argues, that is not a plausible view of him, given the full panoply of data we have about him. Um, and that's why perhaps he feels pushed to offer this very unsatisfactory, oh, it was just honestly mistaken uh, kind of view. So to the extent that you think these uh, options are implausible, that pushes you back through uh, to the implausibility of the, the idea that his claims to divinity were false, which of course pushes you towards the possibility or the plausibility of the idea that his claims were true. Now, I by no means think that that is a knockdown QED argument for the divinity of Christ. But I certainly think it's an argument that ought to make you curious about the guy, that ought to make you think it's uh, a serious uh, subject to dig a little bit further into, that as part of the sort of cumulative case uh, of evidences uh, that you could give for the divinity of Christ, that it certainly has a, a role to play, that it's an argument that carries some weight and should at least soak up some of your scepticism about Jesus, uh, if you have any. So that's why I think the, the New Atheists are wrong about Jesus, partly because they're wrong about the Gospels, 
Um, partly because they just assume a materialistic worldview that would rule out any miracles and, and so on, so it must be all unhistorical. But they're wrong about the materialism. Um, they're wrong about morality on the whole when they dismiss the objectivity of morality, and they're wrong about freedom and responsibility uh, when they criticise religious people uh, for doing things that indeed I think religious people should be criticised for, but the new atheists, are the, although they... they hit the target in terms of criticism rightly sometimes, they offer you a, a, an ontology and an epistemology that, that subtracts any solid ground for you to stand on whilst making those critiques. Um, it is indeed a supernaturalist ontology and epistemology that allows you to seriously make those critiques of the evils of religion. And indeed, that's what a lot of the Old Testament prophets spend their time doing in the Bible, launching critiques of the evils of religion. So they're wrong about uh, morality and freedom and responsibility. also wrong about scientism as a theory of knowledge. And the flip side of that, they also have a misunderstanding of what faith uh, has to be in terms of defining it. It does not have to be blind faith and according to the Bible, should not be blind faith. I think that is enough provocation for one evening. I look forward to having some discussion thereupon. Thank you very much for your attention.